Hi everyone, it's Phil here and I'm here with Natalie and we are today's hosts for this episode that you're about to listen to. Just a little warning before we get started, today's topic is on sexual violence and that can be a difficult topic for a lot of us to hear and listen to. While we don't go into many personal details or detailed stories of people experiencing it, we do generally touch on the topic of what it looks like and how to respond to it appropriately, it can still be difficult for some of us to listen to that. And so we want to recommend that if you are not in the right mind space to uh, listen to this conversation, feel free to skip this one or come back to it at another time. So if you are going to listen to this episode, then uh, please enjoy and we hope that it's going to be beneficial. Thank you. Welcome to Red Dot Project. My name is Phil. And my name is Natalie. And we are here and the Red Dot Project is a podcast brought to you by Red Dot Project. We are working remotely still because we are in the middle of this pandemic. And as we get used to this new programming and how to run a podcast remotely, hopefully it will sound good on your end, the listeners. Uh, If you enjoy what you're listening to, please Hit that subscribe button, and then you can get all the podcast episodes up to date as soon as they get released. Natalie, welcome. What has uh, COVID life been like for you? Not that you have COVID, just <laughs> life where the world of COVID exists. You know what? It was pretty tough at first. I'm definitely a social person. I like to be around my friends. I like to be out and about, keeping myself busy. So I think the hardest part was just trying to keep myself busy for a couple months. But now that I'm back at work, I can say that I I am feeling uh, a lot better. And I'm feeling a lot more normal again, that's for sure. <laughs> that's good. Whatever our new normal is, hopefully we could all get there sooner than later. And we can start uh, getting back to whatever we enjoy to do in our lives, whatever that is. Amen. Yes. So what are we talking about today? Today, we will be talking about socially distancing and when home isn't a safe place to distance and how that has affected domestic violence rates across the world, really. It's, uh, it actually comes from one of our blog posts that we've done uh, in the month of May. This was dropped on May 18th. Nope, I lied. May 5th. Yep, this was dropped on May 5th, and this is in the first couple of months of when uh, we started to hide away in our homes and try to wait for COVID to pass us, and one of the big things that we've noticed in our area of work is that home isn't always safe for everybody, and the numbers actually are about 100,000 people in Canada every year are affected by domestic violence. And so what is life like when you are told you have to stay home, but then home is probably one of the least safest places you can be? You know, what can you do in those situations? And unfortunately, early in this uh, lockdown phase that we experienced in British Columbia, a service provider saw 
a 300% increase in calls to their service um, because of uh, people experiencing domestic violence through that time. So it's, uh, it's a very difficult situation that not all of us necessarily think about when, when we think about where are we most comfortable, where do we want to go after a long day. Unfortunately, there's a large population of people in Canada that just uh, are in situations that home isn't that place for them. I think that it's also difficult because we obviously have more stresses now. People are not feeling like their regular selves throughout this whole pandemic, right? So there are more stresses added to everyone, really. Like, when when am I, when will we be starting work again? There's also financial stressors. And unfortunately, the fact is, is that if someone's already in a domestically abusive relationship, then with these added stresses, it's only going to amplify the, the violence. So we saw different things like services that were deemed essential that maybe people don't always consider essential that opened up conversations in our general society too. One thing is like the LCBOs or the the dispensaries, things like that were deemed as uh, essential. And one of the big reasons why is because there are a lot of people who are dependent on this, those products and not being able to have access to those things could increase the agitation or ability for people to cope during this time. And I know definitely alcohol could be something that would lead to more violence. But then on the other end, it's something that can also help decrease a little as long as you make sure you're maintaining some sense of normal as much as possible for people's lives. And that will, well, that's one of those things that we have to sort of try to figure out how to juggle. Oh, yeah. And it really depends on the person, right? For sure. Some of the things that we sort of brought up in the article are that on uh, Facebook during this time was that a lot of people were sharing a post that somebody made that said that if you are experiencing any form of violence at home, that you should message me about buying homemade soaps. Not because that person's selling homemade soaps, it's just because that will be a signal that something's wrong is happening in the home. And I think that sounds a lot like a really good idea because then it, it's, a, it's a way for a lot of people to have a way to reach out safely because one of the really scary parts about uh, being in relationships where that are abusive is that there's a good chance that the partner the abusive partner is monitoring things like your phone and social media and all these things and are looking out if you are reaching out to people and they hope to intercept those type of messages. So this would be a pretty good way to be able to signal to somebody that you're in some form of danger. But one of the issues that I personally saw with this is a lot of people are sharing this message, but they're not necessarily someone who is either trained or informed on what to do next in these situations. And that in itself can be extremely dangerous because if you give the wrong advice to somebody, you could put them into a lot of danger that's even more dangerous than what they're currently experiencing. Part of the article that uh, we put up is just how can you, if you're going to be putting things like this up on the internet, 
that you're somebody safe to reach out to, what do you need to know and how do you connect them to the services they need that will better prepare them to what comes next in these situations? Uh, because it's not easy, right? It's when you want to leave somebody who's being abusive. There's a reason why a lot of times victims end up going back to the abuser a couple of times before they're able to fully get away. Yes, and I, I completely agree with you. And uh, when I first heard about the like handmade soaps, I thought it was a really good idea at first too, but I was what I found perplexing about it was I had seen it shared at least like 12 times on Facebook. And at the same time, if your abuser is controlling all your social media and is viewing everything, are they not also going to come across this message and know that if you're they're going to put it together somehow and they're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that person might have to deal with the repercussion of the fact that their partner found out what buying handmade soaps actually means in this situation. Mm-hmm. For sure. That's one of the problems, right? Like it, good, well-intended safety plans that go viral is that eventually the person who is these uh, perpetrators in these type of incidents, they're, they're usually not, not too stupid. They usually are able to understand and figure out and navigate through these areas and uh, they'll catch on. So these type of things always have to be changing and always be one step ahead. And it's unfortunate part is, you know, eventually when they catch on, somebody's going to get caught. And uh, that's one of the dangers of that. So um, that that's the big reason why we said if if you are going to be using these type of supports or you're going to extend yourself to be somebody who's going to be a support to others, you have to know how to connect them with the right services. If this is going to be the only chance to reach out, it has to be the best chance. So like the first thing that we do suggest is you could connect them to a website called sheltersafe.ca. On that website, you're able to access information on the local shelters in your area. You could have contact information with professionals, and that's really important. Even if the person chooses not to leave, it's great for them to have that first contact with somebody who is a professional in this type of work that can prepare them for what they need to know before they actually leave. Because it's not so easy to just get up and leave. Um, Because if you do that, for sure, a high number of people end up going back. So there are a lot of different things that you want to make sure you prepare yourself for before you get into those situations where you do leave. Yeah, I think the most imperative thing with uh, when we're talking about domestic violence is it is being connected to a professional or an agency that works specifically in this area that can help you develop a safety plan. Yeah, 100%. And uh, we did help identify some things that you can put into your safety plan before you need to make the decision to leave. And um, this comes from a Luke's Place article. Luke's Place is a service that helps people get out of domestic violence situations. So they listed five things to keep in mind when you are preparing yourself to have to leave a partner. So the first one is very simple. And I think these are things that maybe people overlook or don't think about. But the first thing is identify which room has a solid door and lock. So you want to know if you need to hide away into a room. You want to be in a room that you can secure 
yourself safely while your partner is being aggressive or abusive. So you want to find a room that either has a, it's strong and has a lock on it, or there's furniture close by to the door that you can barricade yourself in. And the other thing that would be ideal is also if there are large windows in that room, so you could sneak out if you have to in those situations. The second point that Luke's Place recommends is staying away from the kitchen. Kitchen, there's so many different items that can be extremely dangerous and used as weapons. And you don't want to be caught in a situation where any a pot or pan, a knife, you know, pretty much everything in the kitchen is dangerous in those situations. So it's uh, extremely important to make sure that you do do that forethought in where you are, what room is safe in those situations. They recommend the bathroom. The bathroom is a little bit easier to lock yourself in. And there's usually less big things that are able to be thrown within a washroom. Although the other thing to think about is the washroom is also usually tighter spaces. So uh, that's not always the best also. Another point that they made was make a list of weapons that your partner has. So if they have any guns or any, I guess, large knives or anything like that, that is important for someone like uh, police or anyone else to know in these situations. Or if anything does happen to you, that people understand that these are the threats that occur. It's really important that you have a list of all the weapons your partner does own and keep that list with somebody else is a good idea that that's available and known. Number four is try to avoid wearing things like necklaces and scarves. Anything that can be used to choke you in when things go bad is going to be probably better. It's just another safety precaution if you're in those situations. It's just better to be safe. And the last thing that they suggest is keep a full tank of gas in your car. So if you have to leave quickly and you need to get away far, that you don't have to make stops or anything like that. You can just keep on going. The things that is really important is having your own money. Always keeping some either cash. Cash is usually better. Somewhere that only you know where it is that's accessible to you if you ever have to leave. So it could be at somebody else's house or maybe somewhere outside of the house in the backyard or something hidden just just in case if you need to make a quick exit that you could have access to that. And that's usually one of the biggest reasons why people end up having to stay is the financial dependencies that a lot of these abusers use as a way to make it extremely difficult for people to leave is just uh, all access to the bank accounts and money and things like that. Oh yeah. It's all about control. Like I've, I know I've talked to numerous women that um, when they finally were able to leave their abuser, they had absolutely nothing. You know, they, they were homeless for a couple of weeks. They had to start pretty much from ground zero because their, their abuser was controlling everything in their life keeping them in the domestic setting, right? So that they didn't have any money, they didn't have access, sometimes even to a phone or a vehicle. And another really important thing is too, is like if you are seeking help from a service provider or an organization that deals with domestic violence to uh, delete any phone calls or any messages that you have between that person uh, and yourself, because eventually the uh, perpetrator or abuser will find them and catch on 
And every time that, unfortunately, every time that an abuser is put in a situation where they, they find out these things, it just worsens the situation for the, for the survivor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an important point for sure is you shouldn't leave text messages or phone numbers or things like that in your phone because there's a good chance that they are watching those things. So you have to save them as something different. If you visit a website, a lot of these shelter websites, they have a quick exit button for you to be able to switch over to Google or another website instantly. But it's also really important to just know your browser settings, keep things in a way that they get deleted quite often. So the history isn't going to be found by your partner. So those little things are the things that if you're in a position where you're getting ready to leave, it could get derailed really quickly if you aren't careful with some of those things. Definitely. So I think like one of the things that we don't hear too much about with uh, relationships and violence is how sexual violence can occur within relationships. And you wrote a couple of articles on sexual violence in the month of May. How do we define sexual violence? So when we're defining sexual violence, it actually takes many forms, but it's simply defined as any sexual act or an attempt to obtain a sexual act by violence or force. And it can include like unwanted sexual comments or advances, selling or attempting to sell someone for sex and acts of violence directed against an individual because of their sexuality, regardless of the relationship to the victim. But the problem with Sexual violence, when it pertains to a domestic setting, is when you care and trust somebody, you you may normalize what's, what's happening to you because you care about that person. And also, for other people, other people tend to question the idea that that can actually happen in a domestic setting. Like, I know that there are, there are a few countries where it's not illegal to sexually assault your wife or your husband per se, because it's pretty much assumed that that can't happen in a domestic relationship when it can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they like assume it's your role to satisfy that partner. So if you're not doing that, that's your fault. Yeah, and like the, the problem with these perceptions is that a lot of them are based in gender norms or uh, you know gender expectations that have been constructed by society. So yeah, in, in many societies, even even in ours to a certain extent, you know, it's always been this idea that women belong in a domestic in positions of domestic servitude or at home taking care of children or it's their job to please. So I think even though like it might not be to that extent here in Canada right now, that is still something that's definitely overlooked. And the problem with I sexual violence too that I found is like it, it feels like more of a debate than something that people are willing to accept um, especially when it comes to the the consent idea about it like to me like consent seems like it's pretty black and white uh, it seems like it's pretty clear but oftentimes you'll hear things like you know was that person drinking you know like what was she wearing and this kind of blurs the lines of consent. And an- another thing with consent is that it can be taken away at any time. So if you give consent to have sex and then you decide, you know, that you don't feel safe 
and you say no, then that's still considered sexual assault. That's still considered sexual violence. Where And it's the same thing goes where, um, you know, if you're in a position where you are, you say no several times, but you still allow it to happen because you're afraid and you're tired of fighting about it, that's also still considered sexual violence. And unfortunately, you know, although this may seem very clear to a lot of us, many people have blurred these lines and, you know, uh, or are more willing to point the finger at the victim or, you know, question what they might be doing. You know, what has this person been doing up until this point for this to happen rather than looking at the perpetrator and, you know, saying this is this is completely wrong. This should not be happening. And, you know, there's there are several populations that are disproportionately targeted when it comes to sexual violence. So according to our numbers, it shows that women are disproportionately targeted. It's one in three women and I believe one in six men. But the problem with that is also there's also a gender construct that men are not supposed to be as open with their feelings, that they're they're not supposed to be as sensitive, they're not supposed to be as emotional. And there's also this misconception that they also cannot be dominated as well. So I think the problem with the numbers that we see when we're talking about sexual violence is I think it's said that there many of the women that uh, experience sexual violence don't report at all. And still we see how high these rates are. And I think the problem with the number with men is we think it might be less, but I think, I think it might happen just as almost just as much. It's just that it's even more underreported for the fear of what the male will go through when, when disclosing this information. And then on, on top of that, you know, we see that, you know, racialized individuals, uh, particularly black and indigenous women are also disproportionately targeted. And that's due to their intersectional identity. And, and then trans people are, are also disproportionately uh, represented when it comes to, when we look at numbers of victims of sexual assault. And you brought up a pretty good point about just how, I guess, the perception of when a male is the victim of sexual assault how it's viewed differently and how the reaction is different. Um, we could just look as simple as when you hear about a teacher that's have that basically rapes their student when it's a male teacher in a relationship or whether it's consensual or not with a student, a female student versus a female teacher with a male student, the way it's reported, the way it's talked about, the comments in the article after is extremely different and at the end of the day it's rape still whether it's statutory rape or flat out rape no matter how you describe it it's a person of power and a person who is an adult that is forcing themselves on a child and it's shouldn't be talked about any different but unfortunately it is and you if you want to go into deeper there's a lot of differences in how it's talked about from a race perspective if the youth is a person of color versus a person who is white the way it's described it can be different also so there's so many different ways that whether it's the media or just general 
society discusses these things in so many different ways that really makes it difficult for certain groups of people to discuss their experiences. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the problem is, is like, it's, you know, after something traumatic happens to you, it's already hard to accept it and then to go on and report it to somebody, you know, out of fear, out of fear, uh, fear of being judged, out of, some, out of the fear of someone not believing you. And then on top of that, uh, victims are faced with all these, these reactions that, or these myths, these rape myths that they have to deal with. Like the fact that, you know, the myth that guys can't be sexually assaulted by women when that happens quite frequently. And, you know, there's also a myth that straight men don't sexually assault other guys, that it's only gay men. When that's also not true, because it, at the end of the day, it's all about control and dominance. It's not necessarily has to do with gender. It has to do more with control and dominance. We saw recently at St. Mike's. Mm. I think, was it St. Mike's? Yeah, St. Mike's. Yes. The private school in Toronto where the sports team was using objects to initiate other boys that are, I guess, newer to the team. And it was sexual abuse. It was sexual assault. It was, you know, not okay. And it it probably had less to do with the, I guess, sexual aspect for them. It was definitely more about uh, the power of, you know, you're new to the team and this is what you have to do to get there. Yeah, it was almost kind of like a uh, some distorted and sick rite of passage. And when I when I looked into it, it it, it it looks like it's been it had been happening there for quite some time, um, and they were aware that this was happening. And I think what makes it even harder, on top of all these things, like it's just there's so much to say about when it comes to sexual violence. But another thing is how the court system deals with sexual violence, right? So one only one in every ten sexual assault cases results in criminal conviction. That's only 12%. So that means that most of the majority of the time, the person that the perpetrator walks free. And what's also wrong with that is that that means that there is a, that person, the uh, survivor, when, when someone is uh, sexually assaulted once, they have a higher chance of it happening again. And then on top of that, they have to deal with the guilt of knowing that their perpetrators walking free and potentially potentially um, assaulting other people, which is beyond their control, right? Mm-hmm. And also, there's definitely a large discrepancy in what what is a true trauma response, like what happens in the brain during a, a traumatic experience, and what is expected in the courtroom when describing your experience. So oftentimes we see, you know, survivors in court and they're trying to recount their experience that happened to them. And they might have trouble remembering, which which is a common uh, trauma response to dissociate. You know, oftentimes we hear about survivors that actually have almost like out-of-body experiences that claim to been watching it from the the corner of the, the ceiling and being frozen because the fact is is like our our brain reacts to things before we have a chance to and the problem with this is that in in the courtroom if you can't fully recount an experience if your memory isn't exact then to them it looks like you're lying or you're making it up 
when in reality, your brain is trying to protect you from reliving an experience that is extremely harmful to your well-being. And like that's one of the hardest parts of being a survivor of something like rape is it's just so difficult to get the conviction in the court system. It's like if you think recently there was the College Street uh, bar incident that happened and it was in court recently and there's surveillance tape of this uh, account actually happening and they still had to go through the whole court system of this woman defending herself and saying that like this was not consensual I was drugged and you could see what they're doing to me and you could tell that in the tape that I'm not really conscious during these moments but yet they the men like almost still got off and even after they still were able to make an appeal and apparently with some like glitches in the court system they might be able to get a retrial still and even with videotape of this stuff happening it's still extremely difficult and long process to get people held responsible for their actions yeah and you know what like i think the problem too is that we we think that these things don't happen close to home we think that it's not it's not just it's not the canadian justice system that also deals with these things but when i actually talk to a victim services worker that's in the the sexual assault and domestic assault section of the new market courthouse they describe to me that rape culture and rape myths are still very much so alive and well to the extent that she has a bla- she actually keeps a blazer in her office that she has just in case uh, one of her clients comes in, maybe showing too much skin and in parentheses. And so because she knows that this will dictate what what the woman is wearing will dictate how the case goes. And this still happens all the time. But even with that in place, we still see this extremely abysmal rate of criminal conviction, which is very sad. Very, very sad. And that's the thing, right, with the court system and how it plays out and you have to have everything right and if you get one detail mixed up it could be the biggest reason why the person gets off because you maybe misspoke in your initial interview of what happened and then you remember things differently a couple months later but still at the end of the day you know you were raped but because you can't say exactly how it happened that person could be free it's it's really interesting when you look at social media on instagram like there's you know all these accounts for in toronto like six buzz and things like that and it's you know i I, i've deleted a couple of them over the last couple of months because Mm -hmm. uh one in particular always posts these memes debating whether women who accuse men of rape that are lying should be in jail. Like every couple of weeks, they post a meme around that topic. And it's, if you look statistically, just how often there's a false accusation that occurs, it's like so minuscule compared to how many times it's actually happening and the person doesn't get arrested or uh, convicted of their crime that it shouldn't even be up to debate, but yet it's held, it's like treated like it's like almost equal. Yeah, that's, I'm actually really happy that you mentioned that because that was actually something that came up recently for me. I had, I had to have a conversation about it with someone, but 
Six Buzz uh, posted something about how the Ontario uh, justice system passed a new law regarding to sexual assault cases um, when it comes to intoxication. And I had seen someone commented it and they just wrote, well, just stop drinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I took it, I took some time to have like a private conversation with this individual and was kind of like, you know, this is a very large problem. And a comment like that kind of um, takes away from the importance of this cause and the importance of this, this social problem and bringing awareness to it. And that's exactly what came up was, oh, well, look at all the, the people that have come, have come forward falsely because they want money or, you know, they want to take someone down for revenge. And just as you said, I actually looked into it. And I think since 1986, they have been looking at all the cases in which uh, men were wrongly convicted or women were wrongly convicted of, of sexual assault. And you're, you're right, it's extremely minuscule. In fact, the, the people that are wrongly convicted for murder is actually much, much higher than people wrongly convicted of sexual assault. Because when it comes down to it, it's actually extremely hard to prove in court that one that someone's been sexually assaulted for numerous reasons, because of the myths around it, you know, because of trauma responses and how they relate to how a person behaves in court or answers questions in court and because of societal norms and societal gender constructs. So, you know, when I when I hear that, obviously, it's not okay to to falsely accuse someone of that because, you know, that's going to change the rest of their life. But at the same time, the the amount of convictions that that were actually credible and that were there was a sexual assault that occurred far, far outweighs the false accusations. Mm-hmm. So when I see that even come up, it, it really upsets me because to me, it's just devaluing, devaluing someone like people's experiences with sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And it's the only it's the only crime in Canada that's not declining. It is the only crime currently that's not declining. In fact, it's getting worse, which tells us a lot um, on how how imperative it is that we have these conversations and bring awareness to what's really going on here because it's it's not declining. And if even if we look at sex trafficking, uh, it's getting since this uh, pandemic has happened, it has gotten a lot worse because generally it is something that occurs like under the surface. It's done very covertly. And because of the pandemic, everyone has their attention on, you know, what's going on with the pandemic and less attention to these, these broader social issues that are, that have been happening for a long time. And I know, I know that the, the GTA alone is like a massive, massive epicenter for sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. So I think it is imperative to have these discussions and talk about, you know, these misconceptions around sexual violence that we see every day still. Mm-hmm. And it's not even like it's the downtown core on like Jarvis street that maybe we grew up thinking that's where all the sex work happens. It's, it's literally happening in Markham and Richmond Hill and Vaughn, Brampton. Like it's it's happening more in those places than the places that we actually think it's happening. Um, it's just again, it's it's a lot more hidden. And 
it's like hidden, but also in our face because like if if you want to look for it, you could find it super easy. But if you don't oh, yeah. want to see it, then it's it's not there. And that's the scary part is that it's so easily accessible for so many people. And and I guess the other scary part is that so many people are accessing it and in using it. There's terms that a lot of people don't generally know about, but are really regular occurrence are things like survival sex, right? When you find yourself in a situation that you didn't expect to be, and you think the best way to get yourself out safely is to just go through the motions of it, just so you can survive. And that looks very different than what we usually think of what rape looks like, but it doesn't mean it's not rape. Yeah doesn't mean it was unwanted right it just means that that person felt like in order to keep their safety they had to do that for sure and there's like that and then again like you mentioned a little earlier is like the disassociation of while it's happening where you sort of have this outer body experience and but then afterwards you realize exactly what's happening and so all these things are things that a lot of people who aren't people that are familiar with how sexual assault triggers different responses wouldn't generally know and that sort of really perpetuates a lot of these oppressive responses to when people uh, disclose that they're experiencing that and you wrote a whole article about oppressive responses to sexual violence yeah i did and you know what i've actually heard i've heard you know unfortunately i've heard a lot i've heard a lot of them used by people um the first one is if she was wearing that then she was asking for it and you know, it's, it's a shame that we have to go over it, but we saw it come into play during that, that uh, 2018 rape trial in, in Ireland when uh, a lawyer held up that teenager's underwear, suggesting it was skimpy and suggesting that, that her underwear implied consent. And, you know, even going back to what we were talking about earlier here, even in Newmarket, talking about how women are judged for their choice of attire when it was happening, how somehow that perpetuates the idea that they were asking for it. So it's it's something that, you know, it's not that far just because we heard about it happening in Ireland. And, you know, it's terrible because that that victim actually ended up taking her own life because of her experiences in trying to come forward with what happened. But it happens here, too. You know, um, here I hear people say all the time, like about catcalling, even, you know, how can you wear something that that tight or that revealing and not expect a response? And the fact is, is that we're not responsible for the the response that our bodies elicit. Our uh, bodies have been hypersexualized by society. And we're, we're not responsible for the response that elicits, you know, it's one thing to think something in your head, it's an it's another thing to, to catcall someone or to actually act on it. Like those are very, very different things, right? But that's that's one that I hear most frequently, which is why it was the first one that I brought up. And then the second one was, you know, why didn't they stop or scream for help? So our, our prefrontal cortex is responsible for our rational reasoning and decision-making. It helps us organize information depending on what we need to pay attention to in order for survival. And then we have our limbic system which controls our emotions, such as love, fear, hate, and anger, etc. But, you know, when an individual is experiencing a traumatic event, the limbic system of the brain takes over, whereas the, the prefrontal cortex takes the back seat. So in this way, the brain responds before the person does, 
or before the person is able to consider the outcomes of their actions. We talk about fight or flight, but we seem so easy that we comprehend these two, these two things and how we have a fight or flight response, but then we forget how these responses come into play in, a, in an experience where there's sexual violence. A person will either freeze, they might feel paralyzed, or they will flee. And it de- the, the experience varies based on the person, based on the situation, based on that person's past experiences, based on what that person feels they need to do to survive. And it's important that we, we look at all these experiences as singular and we don't, it's not us to judge how a person responds to a traumatic experience because we're not in that person's shoes. We don't understand how that person's inner workings are or we weren't there. So yeah, a person does not choose what response is initiated during an attack, but regardless, they might still feel guilt, shame, confusion, and anger for not responding a certain way during a violent attack. Certain times we say, you know, I should, I would have done this if I was that person, or I wish I reacted this way. But the fact is we reacted that way because that's how our brains chose to react at that given moment. So who are we to judge how a person responds? And another really big one, which also goes hand in hand with the fight or flight response is, and we mentioned it earlier, is like, why why can't you remember it then? So oftentimes when a sexual violence survivor is attempting to retrieve memories of an event, there's, there's lots of ambiguities. And in order to understand this, we have to examine the brain through a trauma lens and how the brain and memories are affected by fear and by trauma. So trauma, firstly, it affects five different areas of memory all five of them. And because a person can't remember, they're often they're often questioned like did this really happen? Are you making it up? But then we go back to did the dissoci- the dissociation and pushing things into the subconscious as a means of dealing with it at that time. And there there are numerous studies that show a connection between trauma and its effect on the body. The brain literally makes these memories less accessible because it's overwhelming for the the survivor and could inhibit how they live in their daily life and how they function on a daily basis. And this, because of this, it, it does result in scattered, incomplete or fragmented memories of an event. And unfortunately, many survivors are patronized due to, to, due to the discrepancies in their stories. Simultaneously, at the same time, survivors can also deal with this misconception. So, you know, Traumatic experiences scramble your memories. Maybe you've misremembered what happened. So we see all these loopholes that happen when someone is trying to come forward with their story. And then another one that also comes up very often is why do they still talk to their perpetrator? And I think this comes up a lot specifically in areas where there is uh, sexual violence in a domestic setting. Because people assume like, you know, if someone did something so horrible to you, then uh, why are you still talking to them? And that sounds so easy, but that's unfortunately, that's really not how it works. The perpetrator could be in a powerful position that intimidates the survivor and makes them feel as they are untouchable. And we see this with uh, the Jeffrey Epstein case. He, he was a, a billionaire and look how long it took for justice to be served because of his power and how untouchable he is. Look at R. Kelly, who, who had his first allegations 
de- like decades before he was actually convicted. So he was he had allegations, and then he went on because nothing was done. He went on to assault other people for another ten years because of his his position in society. For sure, it was like literally there was a video released. It was like one of those like early internet videos, like sex tape released of him with a minor. And the only reason why it didn't stick was because the footage was grainy and you could argue that maybe it's not him, but it pretty certainly is him. But because there's that grain of salt denial that it's him, that was enough for him to basically stay away from any legal ramifications of it. And because of that, that allowed people who are his fans to continue to deny that any of this stuff was occurring for so long. Yeah. And then when, when we also look at, you know, people still interacting with their perpetrator, we also see situations like think about the workplace. Like I can name a few. I know many people have told me of experiences where they had a boss or some kind of superior in their workplace that was making sexual advances on them or did something to them. But they know but that because of that person's power, they would either lose their job or the tables would turn on them and they would become the enemy. So there's so many things we have to look at here and how every every experience is singular and it really depends on the, the person, the place, what kind of uh, societal constructs around sexual violence occur in these places. Because when it comes down to it, all those things tend to dictate how it goes more than the survivor's words, which is very sad. And then we look at another one, which is why are they only reporting it now? So not only that, but we saw, we see that majority of sexual violence related crimes aren't even reported at all. Why are they only reporting it now? I I think it's safe to say that, you know, individuals may not want to deal with the anguish that's associated with having to relive an experience. And then on top of that, knowing that there's only a one in 10 chance that their perpetrator is going to get convicted. Why are they going to want to report it? And then for others, it can also take a while to come to terms with what may have happened to them. I think a lot of, especially in children or young adults, I read somewhere that when it's someone that cares about you or is supposed to love you, it actually takes a lot longer to come to terms with the fact that it was a sexual violence because it becomes normalized, right? Because that person is supposed to care for you. And especially as a child, what we're told by our uh, our, our elders or who, who are family members, like we we're taught to listen to the people that are older to it than us. We're taught to listen to them and we're taught to respect them because they're older than us and they they know, they know the ropes of life. So a lot of times when kids come forward with you know sexual assault allegations it's sometimes 10 20 years later because that's how long it takes them to actually understand what happened to them and and how it wasn't normal i've also heard people that they were sexually assaulted as kids and not until they had their first child were they able to understand what had happened to them because they looked at their child and thought of the things that they had went through as a child and finally were able to put together, like, I would not be okay if this happened to my child. That was not right. And, you know, every, everyone has different experiences in understanding 
what has happened to them. And if there is no timeline on when someone should come forward, we like to think we, they should come forward right away. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. That's not the reality of it. And then another myth that we talked about earlier is the perpetrator is a woman. A boy or teenager should consider himself to have been initiated into the exciting world of sex. And we saw this not even that long ago with that rapper, Boozy. But honestly, I hadn't even heard of him before this. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Obviously not a big fan, but he went on Instagram Live and started bragging to his followers about how he had older women performing sexual acts on his underage sons. And, you know, this is this is the perfect example of an in individual glorifying uh, not only sexual assault, but, but also hypersexualizing their own kids. And he also had this, he also has a young daughter. And I'm sure that if he had said these things about his young daughter, then, you know, the world would have reacted completely differently. But because of this misconception that men are ready for sex at a young age, because they're, they're sexually domineering, you know, it's, it's an it's being initiated. You know, this is also harmful because it, it doesn't matter what gender you are. There's a certain, like, when you have something done to you at a certain age, it will, it can be traumatic regardless of your gender. And you're not going to understand it. And the fact that what upset me is that there were, I, I looked at his page and people, like, his, he's still on Instagram. You know, no, no one seems to be, like, blacklisting him. So that just further perpetuates the idea that this kind of behavior is acceptable. When it's not, it's completely unacceptable. Well, there's another story that has come out with Lil Wayne. And like most people know who Lil Wayne is. And Lil Wayne describes his first or one of his first sexual experiences was when he was 11. And he's just starting to become a rapper. And he was at his, uh, I believe, manager's house. And manager was an adult. And he's like there and the recording. I think he was in the recording studio. And then there was a woman there and... The manager told the woman to uh, give Lil Wayne a blowjob, and she did, and that was like his one of his first six sexual experiences. But he jokes about it, but at the same time, it's extremely troubling that uh, that happened, and that was like okay for him to experience that, and that was sort of like the people who are supposed to take care of him in those moments are the ones that are telling him this is what you have to do. Yeah, and you know what? Like, I, I didn't even know about that one. True, like, there are definitely a, a lot of double standards to all sexes when it comes to sexual assaults and how it's viewed uh, by the public. With people that identify as women, we often see that they, it's more likely for a, a person who identifies as a woman to be victim-blamed. But then it's also more likely for a person who identifies as a male to be... Uh, for them not for people not to believe that it's even possible for a male to be sexually assaulted because they also look at it like how how can that happen to a male how is that even possible yeah he can't get an erection if he doesn't want it exactly but in reality that's completely untrue and and these are all based on gender stereotypes like at the end of the day like all of these rape myths are based on gender stereotypes and what we what's been socially constructed as what is a, a male and what is a female. And this is extremely, it's, it's terrible because this, this affects people for the rest of their lives when, when, they're, when they experience sexual violence. It, they experience it for the rest of their lives. It's like 
some people describe it as being murdered, but then ha- being forced to live with it. They, they describe it as having something taken away from them that they'll, they never ha- felt ever again. A lot of them deal with PTSD. There, there's also a huge connection between eating disorders and uh, early childhood sexual assault and how that control, having that lack of control over your body and what happens to your body can, can translate into becoming an eating disorder and feeling like your body is the only thing that you have control over. Especially after this conversation today, I think it's, as a society, we hear about sexual violence all the time, but, you know, do we really comprehend what it means? And do we really understand that every experience needs to be treated singularly and empathetically? Do, do we understand what consent really means? And why does there seem to be so many gray areas? There shouldn't be any gray areas. As a society, we need to really come forward with both a preventative and a reactive approach because I think it's happening so often that we have to be able to react the right way. So understanding how trauma occurs in people working from a trauma-informed practice uh, definitely can help a lot of people better manage the outcomes of experiencing sexual assault but then also we have to work on the other end in how do we prevent it right how do we change rape culture how do we make consent sexy and uh things like that right like how do we get into our college and university systems post-secondary even high school systems and teach youth that consent it should be just a regular part and it doesn't like change the mood. It has to be something that is regularly used with uh, everybody these days because we haven't done it for so long and we've seen the harm that has happened from, through it. Yeah, you know, and I think that it's it's hard for people to fathom having these discussions, especially at a young age with people. But I do think it's imperative um, to have these discussions with your children, you know, as early as the age where they start to speak and understand what different words mean and what different body parts mean like i think it's imperative to talk about good touch versus what bad touch is and to use the anatomical words for your body parts you know not to sugarcoat it so you know i hear a lot about some some little girls their parents will refer to their body parts as something else other than a vagina for instance Mm -hmm. So when they're communicating with their teacher about something, which is, this has happened before. I think one of it, it happened where a girl was using the word cookie for her privates and she, and she was like four or five and she was talking about something that a family member had done to her cookie. And because she wasn't using the proper anatomical language, the teacher overlooked it and thought, oh, like it's just has to do with a cookie. But when the teacher found out that this is the word that her mother had given her to identify what her vagina is, the tables completely turned and she realized that what she had disclosed to her was sexual violence within her own family that was occurring to her. So, you know, it's important that like, yeah, we we wanna shelter our kids. We don't want them to know too much, but we also don't want them to know too little. We need to understand, we need them to understand that these are your body parts and this is good touch and this is bad touch. And this is consent and this is not consent and this is wrong and this is right and another big one uh, when it comes to consent i think that it not only do we need to talk about it in childhood 
But I really think that it's important to talk about consent again in college and high school, because when it comes to uh, substances and drinking, you know, alcohol, there is a lot of uh, a lot of sexual assaults that occur around alcohol occur in like college settings, university settings and high schools. So I think it's important to have those discussions again uh, in like grade nine all the way to grade 12 to just literally drill it into their minds that if someone is drinking, if they're under the influence, they, they can't give consent. If they were under the influence and they had sex, it doesn't mean that they wanted it. It could have meant that they just let it happen mm-hmm. because they were scared. So yeah, these are definitely things that we need to talk about more as a society. You know, sex tends to be a taboo subject, even even now, which is kind of weird when we look at how everything else comes into play in society. But it's still a taboo subject to talk about with your loved ones and with your children and, you know, with your students. But I think that's the most important setting to have these conversations is within your family setting and within educational settings. For sure. And I think it's one of the things that we all have to understand if we are or when we become parents um, that when we think it's the right time to talk about sex with children, they probably already have some form of idea or have heard or thought about it already well before we are ready to have those conversations. So that's why we have to have them early. It's not going to ruin their innocence like we think it will. Um, It's not going to lead them to have more sex. It just means that they are better prepared to understand what's happening before it happens. And I think with so many other things that we see in life, we treat it that way. But for some reason, we always wait to deal with sex until once it already occurred or those ideas already have entered a young child's mind so that's dangerous and you know i think most of us have learned about sex or things around sex from our friends that have older brothers or sisters that tell them stuff that are usually wrong and if we could you know teach them at a young age of what's right and wrong early from people who know better than some teenager that reads some magazine somewhere, then uh, we can definitely protect a lot more people that way. Definitely. All right, Natalie, it's uh, about give or take the hour mark. So I think we're going to have to wrap up. Any last thoughts on this topic before we move on? Yeah, just, you know, if, if someone comes forward with to you, a friend, a family member, a peer, a stranger, they come forward with what what they describe as an experience of sexual violence just listen to them hear them out uh don't don't question the situation don't question uh, that person's story just hear them out validate their experience and then maybe point them to some organizations in your community that deal with sexual violence and or domestic violence um because we're seeing now that there there that's a huge problem is just not giving enough credit to, to the survivor and their story and their experience. So yeah, all I have to say about this and you know what we've talked about today is just listen, hear people out when they come forward with something that they consider sexual violence, just validate them, be there for them best you can. For sure, I think, yeah, with the numbers that we see, one in three women, one in six men, there's a good chance, there's almost a guarantee that someone you know has experienced something and there can be an opportunity where someone close to you will tell you about their experience and knowing how to respond to it will make all the difference in how well they're able to 
manage that experience in the future and get the support that they need. So you take a little time to learn what's the best way, what's the best approach to respond to these situations. Thank you, Natalie, for coming by. We are going to wrap it up because the music is going to start playing about now and it's going to tell us to be quiet. And <laughs> so um, everyone who is listening, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Red Dot Project. We are trying to get somewhat consistent with this. We are going to have multiple guests in the next couple of episodes. So please look out for that. We're very excited. And if you have some time, please like and subscribe and comment on whatever podcast app you use. And we hope to be back soon. So thanks a lot and talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you.